All right. Well, good morning, church. We need to bring a few more fans, huh? Goodness. We're in Genesis 16 this morning. You can call this the the, uh, Egypt mistake, part three. Right? The mistake, of course, way back in Genesis 12 was uh, uh, Abram going down to Egypt. And so far, what are the consequences uh, of that choice? What have been the consequences of that choice? You've had um, <clears throat> wealth, right? They came out of Egypt wealthier than when they went in. Um, you know, it tells us in 1 Timothy 6 that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Uh, and also it tells us in Hebrews 13.5 that keep your life free from the love of money and to be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That was what Abram did. But Lot, of course, because of the, of the wealth, uh, was the opposite. He loved the money, right? So anyway, they, got, they were wealthy. And that wealth caused strife between the two camps, between Lot and Abram, between their, <clears throat> the people who kept you know, their herds and everything, which caused separation. They had to separate themselves. There wasn't enough room for all of them because of everything that they had accumulated and the fact that they were quarreling with each other. So Lot chose to camp near Sodom, and eventually Lot, as we know, will camp in Sodom. He will live in the town. And then, of course, Lot was, because of where he camped, because of the choice he made, he was then taken captive by the four kings of the north, and Abram had to rescue him. And these are all consequences of Abram's action of going down into Egypt. Well, we're going to see another consequence of that bad choice this morning. And this is a story that you probably know well. Sarah and Hagar, Hagar and Ishmael. Let's read Genesis chapter 16. It says, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when, he, when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from, and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And so she called the name of the Lord, who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. 
And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the lessons that are to be learned in it and the power of what we read. There is so much here for us to, to learn about walking in faith and, and the trials that come while we walk and the choices that we make and the consequences that come from them when we try to do your work for you, when we try to get you know, the cart ahead of the horse, when we rush off headlong into areas where we're supposed to be still and patient. So we pray, Lord, that your words be spoken to us this morning, that your spirit move among us. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've said, as we've been studying through this, no one is perfect, not even the father of faith or his wife. Right? We all make mistakes. We all make bad choices. So we'd see a choice made here, regardless of her intentions, regardless of Sarah's intentions. Uh, we see a choice made here by Sarah that has consequences that still play out today. Right? The whole Arab-Israeli conflict is born right here with this choice that Sarah makes to bring her servant Hagar as a wife to Abram so that they may have a child through Hagar. It tells us in God's word in Hebrews, it says that we inherit the promises of God through faith and patience. And we usually don't have a lot of problem with the faith part, but that patience part is often a big issue for us. Now it says in Hebrews 11.1 1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, right? The convictions of things not seen. And when we look at Sarah's actions here in this chapter, it's obvious that she was doing like the opposite of all of that, right? Sarah wasn't assured or convinced of anything at this moment, right? She wasn't assured or convinced of anything that she couldn't see, right? This wasn't a great step of faith for Sarah. She knew the promise, right? She knew the promise that God had given to Abram. She knew that God had promised Abram that his own son would be his heir. And that his offspring or his descendants would be greater than the stars in the sky or greater than the dust of the earth, right? That he, that he had given them this land that ran from the Nile to the Euphrates. I mean, it was a great promise. She knew the promise. But she couldn't see how God was going to use her to fulfill it, right? And so she was impatient because she was barren. I mean... When we first met Sarah, way back in Genesis chapter 11, the first thing it told us, of course, was that, you know, that she had no children. And now it, re you know, it tells us that again, the very first verse here, chapter 16, now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, right? She hasn't gotten any younger, right? She's 75 years old now. It's been 10 years since they entered the land of Canaan. And still, she has no kids. So she's probably thinking to herself, well, how's this promise going to be fulfilled? Right? How's it going to happen? It says in verse 2 that Sarah says, 
right? She says to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. In the Hebrew, that word prevented means restrain, right? It means closed up. The Lord has restrained me or closed me up. I, I, I can't have children. So what she's saying or what she's implying is that she thinks the Lord is punishing her in some way or, or that she's blaming God for her circumstances, right? This hasn't happened yet because the Lord is punishing me or this hasn't happened yet because uh, it's God's fault because I'm barren, right? It's God's fault because I haven't had any kids. Neither are true. Neither one of those things are true. It's, it's funny how our mind always goes to that first, right? I mean, there's actually a, a, a Jewish tradition that, that teaches that Abram and Sarah felt that God was punishing them for not going into the land of Can- Canaan um, fast enough, right? When he called them out, they delayed there at Haran, well, Abram's father, because Abram's father stopped there, and they waited until he died before they came into the land of Canaan. And uh, Jewish tradition teaches that she was barren as a punishment from God because they didn't do what God had called them to do. It's just not true. God's not punishing them, right? But it's funny how our mind always goes to those things first. The Lord's promised me this, but I haven't seen it fulfilled yet, so therefore the Lord must be punishing me for something. The Lord doesn't love me. It's God's fault, right, that this hasn't happened yet. It's funny how we go to there. Our mind goes to those things right away. But neither of those are true. None of those things are true. She's not, it's not God's fault, and he, she's not being punished. But anyway, this leads to the problem of the whole chapter. Her mentality, what she's thinking, the fact that she's been a little impatient, the fact that she can't see how God is going to use her to fulfill this promise of, of uh, Abram's own son being born to him, so she, this, she thinks, okay, I know how I'm going to solve this problem. This is what we need to do, right? I know a way to help the Lord out here. It's time to do something, right? It's time for us to help ourselves here. I mean, have you ever heard that proverb? God helps those who help themselves, right? Where does it say that in the Bible? Anybody? Anybody know where it says that in the Bible? Hezekiah. Six one. There is no book of Hezekiah. I'm just. <laughs> it doesn't say that in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves is probably the most quoted phrase that people think is in the Bible that is not in the Bible. It is not a biblical phrase. It's not biblical. It's actually just the opposite. The saying's actually attributed to Ben Franklin. He quoted it in the Almanac in 1757. But the Bible actually teaches the opposite, right? God helps the helpless. God helps those who cannot help themselves, right? It tells us in Romans 5, 6 that while we were still weak, or some translations say helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Right? God came to seek and save the helpless, those who couldn't save themselves. Right? The harm in that phrase or being taught that phrase or even believing that that phrase is somewhat biblical. Right? God helps those who help. If we throw God in the phrase, it must be biblical. Right? God helps those who help themselves. The harm in that phrase is that it promotes self-righteousness. That's the harm in that phrase. Right? It promotes self-help. I mean, there's, it's a 
millions and billions of resources to encourage us to help ourselves out of problems. Just go to the bookstore. Go to the self-help self section. Look at all the different books you can buy. 25 ways to a better life, you know. You know, become a billionaire in just a week. Yeah. All these different books that you can buy. There's, there's, it's a billion-dollar billion industry. Even, even Christian self-help books, right? It's all false teachings that lead to a false hope. Because when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, helping ourselves separates us from God. We're completely incapable of helping ourselves. Concerning sin, right? We cannot remedy the situation. We need Jesus. He paid the penalty that we are incapable of paying. We cannot help ourselves. Which is why self-reliance and self-righteousness moves us away from God. It doesn't draw us closer to God. Because when we want to be our own saviors, when we want the glory, you know, when it fuels our pride, we're not drawing closer to God then. I mean, that's the problem. When we fail to see you know, God work as fast as we wish he would, right? when we fail to see God work you know, as quick as we want him to, or things aren't turning out the way we expected them to, we start thinking wrongly, right? We start thinking wrongly that, oh, well, you know what? We need to, we need to do our part, right? We need that God's, God's waiting for me because, you know, because I'm that good, right? Somehow I'm above his ways and he needs my help for something. And, and the only reason this hasn't happened yet is because I haven't done what I need to do because God can't fulfill this without me. Can't do it without my help. He's not capable of doing that, Right? So because of that, we start concocting these various plans and schemes to help God out. And then after that, we find out that it was all in vain. That everything we did, we made things worse. And it did more harm than good. I mean, have you ever been there? Ever been in those shoes? Because it's all too common of an experience for us as believers. And that's what Sarah's doing here. She's doing more harm than good. Right? So what does she do? She takes Hagar, her servant, an Egyptian servant, right, whom Abram received in Egypt as payment from the Pharaoh for his sister, right? Remember, back in Genesis 12. And so she brings her servant to Abram, and she says, here, marry her, have relations with her. And to convince Abram, and to his detriment, he doesn't need much convincing, right? Sarah says some of the most problematic words you could say. She says in verse 2, It may be that I shall obtain children by her. See, the most problematic words you can say are, It may be. Why? Because it's not, quote, Thus saith the Lord or the Lord has told me, or anything of that, right? There is, there is a huge gap between it may be and the Lord told me. And many a mighty man has fallen into that gap. It may be, right? It may be is a sign of trouble. 
It means you don't know for sure, but hopefully maybe, if we're lucky, this choice I'm making will work out for good. It may be, right? It means you have no assurance because God hasn't said, yes, that's what you're supposed to do. It may be is problematic, right? Sarah had no assurance on which to base her actions because she was just seeking to help herself. Sarah was second-guessing the Lord. I also want you to notice what she says. She says, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. She's not saying, it may be that we shall obtain children by her. It just shows you part of her mentality right now. Right? She's very self-servicing at this moment. This is what I was looking for. I feel that this is what I need. This is how we're going to do it because this is what I want. All right? She was second-guessing the Lord. Let me tell you, don't second-guess God. All right? Discouragement and impatience make us vulnerable to the flesh, yes, but that is not an excuse to second-guess God. Romans 14, 23, the end of that verse says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you can't step out in faith, you're stepping out in sin. It may be. It was Sarah making a sinful step, trying to help God. <laughs> I'm going to help him. It may be that this was the right. No, it wasn't the right choice. Right? We must listen to the voice of God. We must rely on God because guess what? It's much better to receive God's help than to help God out. Abram now, of course, is not free from blame in any of this because he should have stepped up and stopped it. But it says, no, he listened to the voice of Sarah. God also condemned Adam for listening to the voice of Eve in the garden when it came to eating the apple. There's a whole other sermon there about husbands listening to the voices of their wives. I won't get into it right now. It's also very, you know, touchy subject. But Abram should have stepped up and said, no, 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 no. This isn't the right choice to make. Have we sought God out on this? Have we gone to God in prayer in this? Should we have... Is this what God told us to do? Is this how we're supposed to proceed? Abram should have done that. But no, Abram was like, yeah, whatever, okay. I'll take your servant as a bride, yeah. Polygamous marriage, sure, it's common. Everyone does it around here. The Bible has lots of polygamous marriages. The Bible supports polygamous, polygamous marriage, right? Because it shows how many people in the Bible have multiple wives, right? The Bible supports polygamous marriage. Except it doesn't ever, so it has many examples of polygamous marriage, but it doesn't ever show a really happy polygamous marriage because there are no happy polygamous marriages in the Bible. He shouldn't have done it, right? He shouldn't have done it, but he does. He has relations with Sarah. They get married, quote unquote. Hagar, sorry. Yeah, thank you. Right? And she it conceives. She's pregnant. It was the custom of the day that to actually have children by your servant. That was common back then. And so according to custom, the child would be considered the child of Abram and Sarah. So Hagar is basically a surrogate mother. That being said, just because it's common and accepted doesn't mean it's the right choice. Right? 
as we will see. Because when you substitute your own plans for God's plans, there will be consequences. When we seek to please ourselves and not please God, there will be consequences. Right, there's a quote, a quote by George MacDonald, who's a, a Christian minister from like the 1800s. He says, In whatever man does without God, he must fail miserably or succeed more miserably. Which is what's happening here with Abram and Sarah. So what are the consequences of her actions? Well, they start in verse 4. Uh, it has to do with Hagar. And it says, when Hagar had conceived, when she realized she was pregnant, she looked at contempt on her mistress, which means she looked at contempt at Sarah. Why? Looking at her in contempt means that she, that, that she thought Sarah as insignificant now. In a sense, like, she held no authority over her anymore. I'm greater than you are now, Sarah. Right? Well, because it showed that the problem, the infertility issue between Abraham and Sarah wasn't Abram's fault. It was on Sarah's end. So now she's looking at Sarah like, I'm greater than you. Right? In her pride, she's looking at Sarah and like, you, you don't mean anything anymore. Look, look how great I am. I'm pregnant with Abram's son. Look how great I am. Well, there's the first problem we see right there, right? And this, this whole thing unfolds like a soap opera, trust me. Um, so it says that Hagar despised Sarah. She looked at her in contempt. So now Sarah gets upset, of course, right? So, and it says... In verse 5, and Sarah said to Abram, right, so now we're going to have an art, you know, this, this leads to a family argument, is what it leads to. And so Hagar looks at Sarah with contempt. Sarah's like, she's looking at me with contempt. Right, she turns to Abram and says, this is your fault. This is all your fault, right? I mean, that's basically what she tells him. She says, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she, was, she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. This is your fault, Abram. This is all your fault. Right? So she starts arguing with Abram, and now she's blaming Abram, which leads to another mistake. Abram's response back to Sarah. Again, this is where Abram should have stepped up and said, wait a minute, right? I'm sorry it's gotten this far. We should have never gotten this far. Um, this, this is not my fault. This is our fault. We made a bad choice here. Let's, you know. But what does he tell her, right? He did, he's, it's like he's trying to back out of the room quietly, if you, you know. Husbands, you understand this when your wife's upset at you. You're just trying to get out of the room alive, you know, Abram is just trying to back out of the room quietly. Sarah is mad at him. And he says, hey, well, she's uh, your servant. Uh, you deal with her. I got to go meet the guys. See ya. Right? And takes off. He just leaves it in her. Do what's good in your sight, he tells her. Well, that was a bad choice. He should never have said that. Right? Because that's exactly what she did. She did what she thought was good in her sight. But her sight right now was what? clouded with jealousy and anger, right? She was upset and frustrated. She was mad at Abram. She's mad at Hagar. Abram just made a bad situation worse. 
right? Right? The wrong thing to say to your mad, irritated, and upset wife. Right? Because that's exactly what she did. It says that she dealt harshly with Hagar. Right? It says Sarah dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. Hagar fled from her. In the Hebrew, what does that mean? That means that she beat her. That's what she did. She was so mad at Hagar, she beat her and Hagar fled. She dealt with her harshly. Harshly is a nice way of putting it. Right? So we got, it's like, this is like the perfect model Christian family here. Right? That Abram and Sarah, Christian couple of the year, People Magazine. No. Right? It's not. However, all is not lost. Right? Why? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Because he seeks Hagar out. And we see that in verse 7. It says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Pay attention to that. It says he found her. What does that mean? That means he was searching for her. He didn't stumble across her. He wasn't just out wandering around going, Oh, hey, Hagar, what are you doing here by the well? Right? He was searching for her. The angel of the Lord, this is a Christophany. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. This wasn't just a dream or a vision. He was physically there. Hagar confirms this later with what she names the well, with what she names, you know, with, with what Ishmael means, with what she calls God, all those things. So it's the first use of the phrase angel. It's the first use of the phrase angel of the Lord, just in case you're keeping track of some of the firsts in the book of Genesis. But it's a Christophany. So he found her, indicates he was searching. What else is you? What else does he do? He calls her by name. He doesn't say, hey, woman, by the well, what's going on? He comes up and says, Hagar. He also calls her a servant of Sarah. He does not say wife of Abram, which means he didn't agree to the marriage. He didn't accept it. He told her exactly who she was. Hagar, servant of Sarah. He put her in her place. Don't think too highly of yourself. I know exactly who you are. I've sought you out. I'm searching for you. I love you. You're Sarah's servant. You're not Abram's wife. However, I'm going to take care of you. Right? He asked her questions he already knows the answer to. Where'd you come from? Where are you going? Right? He doesn't need the answers to this. He knows exactly. But this is so Hagar would tell him what's going on, that she would open up to the Lord. Right? And what does she say? She says, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. You know that Hagar's name means uh, flight? That's what Hagar's name means. It means flight. And so here she is fleeing from Sarah. And what is God's response to her? What does Jesus tell her? This goes against all counseling you would probably get today. Even in the church, probably. He says, return to your mistress and submit to her. This is what I want you to do, Hagar. Sarah, who just beat you and ran you out of camp, 
who's mad at you because of the way you were treating her, the way you looked at her with contempt. What I want you to do is just forget about her and move on. You don't have to think about her anymore. Just put her behind you. Right? Forgive and forget. Don't let that happen again. Go on. No, he says, he says, return to her. Return to her and submit. You're her mistress. You're her servant. She's your, you know, your mistress. Return to her and submit. That would be a difficult thing to do. Very difficult for her to do that. See, God gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. Hagar humbled herself before God. God gave her grace. God blessed her, and he blessed Ishmael, right, her son who was to be born. He gives you this blessing right here. He says, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Now, he shall be a wild donkey of a man. That's a nice phrase, okay? Translation, King James, he'll be a wild ass of a man, right? His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Ishmael is the father of the Arab people, and the Israeli and the Arabs still fight, right, today. Right? But he says, I will greatly multiply your descendants through your son Ishmael. And he's going to be father of all these people. Ishmael means God will hear, or God hears. That's what Ishmael, God named him. This is the first child to receive his name before birth in the Bible. So he's up in the ranks with John the Baptist and Jesus, as far as that's concerned. Right? And God names him Ishmael, right? Because it's, the Lord said, I heard your affliction. I heard your cries. I know what you're going through. I know how you were treated. And I came to seek you out and restore you. And that means you need, to, you need to return and submit to Sarah. And she understands that she has seen God. Says that she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Right? That's El Roy. You are a God of seeing. Right? The God who sees. She understands that she's talking to God. And she names the well that she's at, she names it Bir Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. You are a God who sees. My son is named, um, you know, God will hear. And I'm naming this well where you met me, the, the, the well of the living one who sees me. God has seen me. God has heard me. I was in distress and I called out for help and God came. She calls him God. She, she calls him the God who sees, right? Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. God looks after me. God cares for me. The God who answered her in distress, right? God is gracious. Listen, your mistakes don't nullify the grace of God. God's grace is greater than your sin. He sought out Hagar. In her sin. Don't think that she wasn't sinful. She wasn't an innocent party. She may have been like the least innocent, maybe, of everything that was going on in the sense that she was just obeying, you know, Sarah. 
But, but then her pride got in the way. So she was sinful as well. But he sought out Hagar, and he changed her heart. And by changing your heart then, right, he changed your direction. And instead of fleeing away from her problems, she now turned around and went back and faced him. Right? Just because you sin against the Lord doesn't mean he will desert you. He seeks you out, right? He seeks and saves the lost, right? He seeks and saves the afraid, the fearful, those who are on the run, those who are ashamed of the decisions that they have made, those who are trying to run away from the problems that they've created or the messes that they're in, those who turn their back on God. He seeks them out because he hears their affliction. He sees their distress. And he wants to touch their lives in the midst of their suffering, which is what he did with Hagar. He wants all to repent and turn back to God. That's what forgiveness is. That is what repentance is. It's turning back, right? You, you, you missed the mark, and now you're turning back. He wishes none to perish. You could say that this was Hagar's wilderness experience, right? It brought her face to face with the living God. She learned the truth about God. She learned that he listens and that he cares, personal, right? He cares for her and he cares for her future. And not only that, he cares for what? Unborn children. Named him. Gave him a future. God sought her out to tell her that. I care for you. I'm going to take care of you. He changed the heart of Hagar. Then he changed her direction so that instead of fleeing away from her problems, she then turned around and returned to Abram and Sarah. Hagar returns, no doubt, telling them of her encounter with the living God, which must have brought them to their knees. God used Hagar to get Abram and Sarah as well to repent and submit back to God. Right? Ishmael is born. Abram obediently names him Ishmael, right? As God said. Can you imagine Abram being like, well, I was going to name him Joe, but you told me God said to name him Ishmael. They repent. And guess what? Abram and Sarah now have to learn to live with their mistakes, with God's help. It's easy to push our mistakes away or to chase our mistakes away or to run them so we don't have to look at them. I don't want to look at those. I don't want to look at my problems. Put them outside, lock the door. Send them somewhere else. I don't ever have to, to face them. But God sent their problems right back to them. And they had to face them. But what they realized then is that they were wrong. They had sinned. They needed to repent and submit to the Lord because they were going to need the Lord's help to live with their problems and their mistakes. As we all do. Because right? God cares for those who trust Him. And they trusted God. Now, Ishmael, of course, is not the son of promise. It's not the son of the promise. That would be Isaac. God was not taken by surprise by the events that unfolded here. 
His purposes will always be accomplished. His will will be done. And God in his perfect timing will bring that promise to its fulfillment. Abram and Sarah still have to wait another like 15 years or whatever before Isaac is born. And this is really, when you look at this chapter, chapter 16, and how it unfolds with Sarah, and then you look into chapter 17, specifically more towards the the second half of 17, and then you look at chapter 18, when God comes and visits for a barbecue at the camp with Abraham and Sarah before he's heading to Sodom and Gomorrah, what you're going to see here is a growth in Sarah's life. See, Abram's been growing in his faith. The Lord's been growing Abram, but now it's Sarah's turn to understand how God is going to use her to fulfill his promise. She still has to get over that doubt she has, right? <laughs> Am I really going to give birth to a son when I'm this old? You've got to be crazy, she says. And God's like, why did your wife just laugh in the tent over there? We'll get to that when we get there. God in his perfect timing will bring that promise to its fulfill- fulfillment. So to end, let's wrap this up. When we listen to the wisdom of the world, when we listen to the culture that we live in, and not to God, when we arrogantly think that somehow we can help God by helping ourselves, then we end up doing what is good in our sight, but not good in the sight of the Lord. When you try to help yourself, when you take a detour from God's plan for you, because things aren't what you like. Things aren't what you wanted. This isn't how I expected things to be. Well, guess what? The detour is going to be worse than the main road that you were on. It's dangerous for you to depend on your own wisdom. Right? It's dangerous for you to depend on the wisdom of the world. Right? It is dangerous for you to trust your own heart on these things. Right? The Bible tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Why would we trust our own heart? Who do we need to trust? God. Right? Now it says in Isaiah 28, 16 that whoever believes will not be in haste. Just as we were singing, be still. Right? The Lord says, be still and know that I am God. Be still. Don't run off and rush around and know that I am God. Don't get busy and chaotic and crazy and just so full of things that you don't have time to know that I am God. Be still. The Lord cares for you so much that there are times that if you won't be still, he will make you still. So you will understand. That verse in Isaiah 28, 16, Paul quotes that verse in Romans 10, verse 11. But he changes it, right? Guided by the Spirit, he, he changes the verse. And it says, whoever believes in him, instead of saying will not be in haste, he says, shall not be ashamed. When you act in haste, when you get the cart ahead of the horse, right? When you try to help God out, when you second guess God's decisions or second guess God, it will lead you into making bad decisions, and you will end up being ashamed. Abram and Sarah probably felt very ashamed of what had happened. Sarah probably felt very ashamed of the way that she treated Hagar. But whoever believes in the Lord will not be ashamed. 
when you act in haste, when you act in unbelief, when you act in impatience, when you act in uh, anger or pride or even indifference. That's what Abram did. He acted in indifference. When he should have taken charge of the situation, he was indifferent about it. She's your servant. Uh, you know, do whatever you feel is good to do about her. It's not my problem. Don't, don't bring me into this. Right? When you act in indifference, when you let these things take over your life or your home or your family, you're letting sin reign. Don't let sin reign. Right? Our disobedience and our sin may cause pain and regret in our lives. But in Jesus, that's temporary. That's temporary. As God's grace wins in the end. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, for this is light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Those struggles are temporary. So what should we do? We should be patient. Right? We should have hope knowing that the Lord sees our afflictions, knowing that the Lord hears our distress, knowing that the Lord understands the problems that you're going through, that he walks with you through them. And during those moments of struggle, you know that the Lord's going to seek you out. He's going to come alongside you. When you feel that you're lost, he's going to show up and be like, how are you doing? He's going to call you by name. He's going to be like, where are you going? You trying to run from this? Why don't you submit? Turn around. Come back. With my help, it will be okay. If you want to help yourself, there is something you can do. It's real simple. Everything that you do do unto the Lord, right? For the glory of God. Wait upon the Lord. Be patient. Right? Obey God's word. Not man's. Obey God's word. Right? It's real simple. Trust Jesus. You want to do something to help yourself? Trust Jesus. Give it to him. There's a quote that says, faith is living without scheming. Right? So quit scheming. Right? Don't look for the gray areas. Don't read between the lines. Don't search for the loopholes. Right? Don't run away from the problems that you're facing because that doesn't solve anything. Barnhouse says that if we seek to change our circumstances, we will jump from the frying pan into the fire. Right? We must be triumphant exactly where we are. It is not a change of climate we need, but it's a change of heart. The flesh wants to run away, but God wants to demonstrate his power exactly where we have known our greatest chagrin. That's why God wants you to stay right where, he right where you are, right where he has you. Unless God has told you to go, you stay right where you are. Because he wants to demonstrate his power right there. In the midst of everything that you're going through. In the midst of all the problems and all the stress and all the craziness that's going on around you. God says, I want to reveal myself and demonstrate my power right here in this. I want to show you how great I am. You know why Sarah and Abram hadn't had a child yet? 
because they hadn't hadn't got to the point where they could say that this was a miracle. I mean, all the way up to this point, if they had had a child, it would have been like, okay, we did it. Yeah, we're a little old, but hey, we finally had a kid. They had to get to the point where when when, (laughs) when Sarah is pregnant and has Isaac, they say, there's no way we could have done this without God. God did this. God did exactly as he promised. God has to bring you to that point where you can't say that you did anything on your own. The only reason that you got through it, the only reason that you survived that moment or saw that fulfilled or saw that God move like that was because for the glory of God. It had nothing to do with you at all. You were too old. Right? You, you, you were just dried up. There's nothing you could have done. You were weak and frail and you'd given up. You're just laying there, 95 degree weather on the couch going, God, take me, please. (laughs) And then he shows up because you couldn't do anything anymore. You couldn't try to do anything on your own power. You were powerless. And he's like, okay, here's the perfect time because what do I do? I come to help the helpless. And now you're helpless. You finally got to where I want you to be. Helpless. Trust God. Have confidence in his word. Trust in his promises. Submit to God because he is working things out for your good and for his glory. You can trust that. As it tells us in Hebrews 10, we'll end with this verse. It says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Don't throw away your confidence. Keep it in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the strength of these words. And I pray, Lord, that you would just work these out in our lives, that you continue to help us with this because patience is not our strong suit. We have troubles, Lord, being still. We have troubles being patient and waiting. We just feel like we, gotta, we just got to help you out. Our motives seem to us as pure. We're helping you, Lord. But you're like, I didn't need your help. I want for my glory, not yours. So, Lord, help us with this. Give us the patience that we need. It's the wrong thing to pray for, but still, give us patience. Help us be still, Lord. Help us trust you. And help us be a light in the darkness and point people who are searching for this same hope, Lord. Point people to Jesus. I thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.